Welcome to Mars Messina Presents. This is Mars and today is Saturday, February 18th, 2023. I should call this Insomniac's Theater because I have just been up all night and I am a lifelong insomniac and even I'm complaining. But I'm also um, suffering from um, tinnitus for about 25 years now because of a really loud Iggy Pop concert I went to and suffered some pretty devastating tinnitus at that concert. And they gave me this gigantic shot, okay? Because when I walked out of that theater that night, people talking at a normal level like I am now sounded like a muffle or a whisper and all I could hear was okay tinnitus and I thought it would never go away and I thought it was gonna drive me crazy and it was gonna make me kill myself that's how bad it was and so um, yeah I got this uh, gigantic shot like gigantic shot I think two really hurt <clears throat> and they weren't antihistamines they were histamine shots which I thought was interesting and then for a month after that I had to self-inject into my thigh with smaller shots and I just couldn't do it so I'd have to drive over to my mother's house and have her do that for me anyway the tinnitus is crazy uh, sinuses insomnia and I had this bout of vertigo a couple days ago. It is not fun when the room is spinning and you're not drunk. Um, not fun. I don't know why I decided to spill on my health issues, but there it is. Insomniac's Theater with Mars Messina Presents. Today is episode 96, and we are going to address, okay, it's a big word, but stay with me because this is so interesting. Psychoneuroimmunology. Psychoneuroimmunology. Let's break the word down. So psycho is the Latin term for of the mind. Neuro pertains to nerves and the nervous system. And immunology is the study of the immune system. Okay, so yeah, this is going to be pretty heavy on the science, but it's going to be so helpful at the end. There's going to be this big payoff, so just stay with me if you're not of a scientific mind. Um, just listen to this. It's so important. Okay, so many times over previous episodes, we have already discussed the relationships between the mind and the body, We've learned that the same cells that are present in the brain are also present in the gut and that the stomach is often, often called the second brain of the body. We've covered psychosomatic illness, which is much different than what is commonly known as hypochondria. Just for example, people who get ulcers are often type A. They're often ambitious and working all the time, and they're worriers. So what happens in their mind starts to manifest in their body. So yes, if you have unresolved mental or emotional issues, it can present physically. For this episode, we're going to do a deeper dive into how both wellness and illness are driven by the connection between the mind, the nerves, and the immune system. So the origins of the concept of mental health can be traced all the way back to Plato, who argued that immorality is to the soul what disease is to the body. The purpose of this argument was to answer those who thought that morality is a set of social conventions and in that sense is contrary to nature. In fact, this is a philosophy I am seeing growing more and more today. Now, Plato count countered this with the response by turning to those who made a systematic, I'm sorry, yeah, they did, gosh, sorry, I'm losing 
my little train of notes here. Yeah, okay, so Plato countered that argument by turning to those who made a systematic study of nature, meaning the medical writers of his day, and claiming that if proper balance is needed to maintain a healthy body, the same is true for the soul. Now, this does not mean that Plato sought to excuse immoral behavior by treating it as a medical condition, but rather he regarded immoral behavior as contrary to nature and thus treatable. So there, that was the concept behind mental health and getting treated for mental and emotional issues. Not that he was right about everything, but that's where it all began. So in recent decades, it, is, it has become increasingly clear that psychological stressors can lead to physical symptoms, not only by the ego defense of somatization, and somatization means the production of recurrent and multiple medical symptoms with no discernible organic cause. So like my vertigo, I already have this checked out, it's not a tumor. But they were asking me, are you under stress? And when they were first asking me this, I was like, what does that have to do with anything? And it had everything to do with everything. Like everything. Because when I first started getting dizziness and vertigo, my mother died. <laughs> Three months later, all of a sudden I'm, I'm dizzy and I don't know why. So... um so yeah, you get these recurrent and multiple medical symptoms without a discernible organic cause, um, but also physical processes involving the neurons, endocrine, and immune system are also affected by what's going on in the mind. So for example, um, besides the example I just gave, one recent study conducted out of the Harvard Medical School found that the first 24 hours of bereavement are associated with a staggering 21-fold increase risk of heart attack. And you've probably all heard the stories about, you know, when people have been married 50, 60, 70 years one of them dies and the one that's left who was healthy dies very soon after. Uh, there's a psychosomatic reason for that. Since initial experiments on lab rats in the 1970s, the field of psychoneuroimmunology has bloomed. The large and ever-increasing body of evidence that it continues to uncover has led to the mainstream recognition that not only of the adverse effects of psychological stress on health, recovery, and aging, but also of the beneficial effects of positive emotions, such as happiness, motivation, and a sense of purpose. So we're gonna be talking not only about illness here, we're gonna be talking about wellness too, and how we can affect both of these with what's going on in our mind and, and some of the choices that we make. Modern science has barely caught up with the wisdom of the ancients who were well aware of the strong link between psychological well-being and good health. In one of Plato's early dialogues, the Carmedes, Socrates tells the young man named Carmedes, who has been suffering from headaches, about a charm for headaches that he has recently learned from a mystical physician. According to this physician, it is best to cure the soul before curing the body since health and happiness ultimately depend on the state of the soul. But how should one go about curing the soul? And Socrates answered with beautiful words. He said the soul was treated with certain charms my dear Carmines, and that these charms were beautiful words. What? Yep, as the virtue of temperance 
is the marker of the health of the soul. Socrates asks Charmides, or Carmides, whether he thinks he is sufficiently temperate. This conversation took place in 432 BC, which was the year Socrates returned to Athens from military service at the Battle of Potidaea, I believe it's pronounced, and its subject, as it turns out, is no less than the nature of sophrocene, a philosophical term often translated as temperance, but when you go right down to the root of these words, it actually means healthy-mindedness. Whereas Pluto associates physical and mental health with the virtues, and in particular with the virtue of temperance or healthy-mindedness, Aristotle associates health with the supreme good for man. <clears throat> and the supreme good, he says, is a philosophical... According to Aristotle, the supreme good is the philosophy that loosely translates to happiness but is best translated as human flourishing. Okay, temperance, human flourishing, keep this in your mind, okay? In a nutshell, Aristotle argues that to understand the essence of a thing, it is necessary to understand its distinctive function. For example, one cannot understand what it's like to be a musician unless you can um, understand the distinctive function of a musician is to play on a musical instrument with a certain degree of skill. Whereas human beings need nourishment like plants and have sentience like animals, what is the human being's distinctive function? According to Aristotle, the distinctive function of a human being is their unique capacity to reason. The supreme good or human flourishing or true happiness for human beings is to lead a life that enables them to exercise and to develop their reason. And that is in accordance with rational principles and with nature. However, to live life according to rational principles is to seek out the right sorts of pleasure. And um, he's thinking more uh, along the lines of higher, uh, higher thinking, like contemplation and friendship, okay? Um, and the types of friendship that are not governed by pain or excess. So, um, like, like, let's say you're highly sexual and you, you pursue that. That's actually going against nature because that can uh, be governed by pain and excess, or if you really like eating food, um, this is kind of a restorative pleasure, kind of like sex, but it's not the right sort of pleasure that he's talking about. He's talking about um, like meditation. He's talking about um, very few but very true loyal friendships. To pursue the higher pleasures is to stimulate the action of the healthy nature and to be healthy is not only to be free of pain and disease, but also, and most importantly, to flourish according to our natural, essential, um, uh, na our natural, essential way of being a human being. Um, as Socrates also said, you will do me a much greater benefit if you were to cure my soul of ignorance than if you were to cure my body of disease. Very interesting that these wise, extremely intelligent sages were thinking this way. And I'm going to stop here with them because they also say some really fascist things about how to treat people with chronic disease. Um, some of the things they say are really questionable and in and of themselves probably require a deeper dive. But I just want to set this up as a background because instead for this episode, I want to focus on psychoneuroimmunity or immunology and its relationship to the vagus nerve, which is what we've already talked about. I want to talk more about the vagus nerve. So basically, 
um, the vagus nerve, if you didn't hear a previous episode when I talked about it, the vagus nerve is this wonderful headquarter nerve that tells all of the other nerves of the body to calm down when we activate it. Okay, and we are going to talk about all the ways of activating the vagus nerve. But before I get there, for more than a decade, researchers have known that behavioral and psychological events can influence the immune system. But now, new research shows that the immune system sends signals to the brain that potently alter neural activity and thereby alter everything that flows from neural activity, namely behavior, thought, and mood. In a true, real sense, stress makes us physically sick. Additionally, many of the changes over time in mood and cognition are driven by events in the immune system of which we are unaware, and this is according to recent studies. When some researchers researchers talk about the immune system, they are not talking about this specific immune response of T cells, B cells, killer cells, um, antibodies that most other psychoneuroimmunologists study. This specific group of researchers are more interested in what's called the nonspecific immune response, which is the body's rapid first-line defense against infection or injury that's initiated an hour or two after infection or injury. This first-line defensive nonspecific immune response is often called the sickness response because it triggers a series of physiological and behavioral changes which include fever, um, a lack of appetite, um, reduced water intake, reduced sexual activity, reduced every other activity really, and increased anxiety. It often or also activates a classic stress response, releasing stress hormones such as cortisol. The sickness pattern is an orchestrated attempt to produce energy for fighting infection and also to preserve energy through behavioral changes. Knowing that signals from the brain, in particular the hypothalamus, which is part of the limbic system that processes emotion and memory, trigger these sickness responses Researchers attempted to parse the molecular machinery at work. The first step was to figure out how the brain knows there's an infection in the first place. So they thought that the key lay in molecules called pro-inflammatory cytokines. cytokines. Okay, and we talked about inflammation being the beginning of disease. Okay, now these there's immune cells called microphages. So think of microphages as B-movie monsters that go around eating everything, okay? Now, microphages, immune cells, are the first on the scene of any infection, so they're the first responders. They're the big blob that wants to eat everything. And they create these pro-inflammatory molecules because in order to fight infection, you do have to have an inflammatory response. It's when that inflammation gets out of control that we're in trouble. Experiments have shown that um, it's these B-monster, B-movie monster cells that act inside the brain to trigger this uh, sickness response, okay? I know this is getting a little science heavy, but just stay with me, okay? Listen to this. When researchers inactivated these pro-inflammatory cytokines or blocked the receptors in the brain that bind them, animals show no signs of sickness after infection. And if they administer these cytokines to the brain, the animal shows 
all the signs of infection even when no infection exists. Interesting. It was discovered that it's not the pro-inflammatory cytokines produced in the blood by microphages that tell the brain you're sick. Why? Because microphages themselves, they're too big to get past the blood-brain barrier. So they're on the brain, but they can't go in the brain. So instead, the message that you're sick moves from the bloodstream to the vagus nerve. And that is what tells your brain that you're sick. It's the vagus nerve that delivers the message to the brain that it's sick, not the microphages that are producing these pro-inflammatory cells that's outside of the brain. But what's inside of the brain is the vagus nerve. One researcher said, if I cut your vagus, which has been done in such, which has been done in rats, your brain doesn't even know it's sick. That knocked me out. Because I always think of the vagus nerve as this great nerve that when you activate it, it tells the whole body to calm down. I did not realize that it was the vagus nerve that also told the body that it was sick. This is a game changer, you guys. If you know how to activate your vagus nerve, you can really affect your health in a really great way. I'm not saying that it'll cure you of all diseases or prevent all diseases. I'm just saying that in your overall wellness, whether you're sick or you're healthy, that vagus nerve can do a lot either way. How does the body translate a blood-borne signal into a neural signal? Sitting along the vagus nerve are pockets of neurotransmitters called paraganglia, which have on them receptors of something called interleukin-1, which is one of the cytokines released by macrophages, the B-movie blob guy. The way this all works is really amazing. Your microphage chews on the bacteria, and as it chews on the bacteria, it releases interleukin-1 into the neighboring space. The interleukin-1 binds to receptors on the paraganglia of the vagus nerve, which then sends neurotransmitters to activate the vagus nerve, which sends a signal to the brain. This signal triggers the brain to make its own interleukin-1, and that sets off the sickness response and sends signals back to the immune system, further activating immune cells. And as a result, we have a complete bi-directional immune-to-brain circuit. Now, it turns out that stress taps into this very same circuit. But instead, it starts in the brain rather than in the immune system. So the, with an infection, starts with the immune system, travels through the vagus nerve to the brain. Stress starts in the brain, travels through the vagus nerve into the immune system. Scientists find that if they stress animals by socially isolating them or giving them electric shock. They see massive increases in interleukin-1 in the hippocampus. Again, that, you know, that part of the limbic system um, that houses like blood pressure, reg um, breathing regulation, but also your emotions. Stress and infection activate overlapping neural circuits that critically involve interleukin-1 as a mediator. Not only does stress produce the expected stress response, it also produces exactly the same behavioral changes, including decreased food and water intake and physiological changes, including fever, increased white blood cell count, and activated macrophages seen in the sickness response. 
So the symptoms are the same, whether it's an infection or it's stress, the symptoms are the same. These animals are physically sick after stress, said lab researchers. You see everything you see with an infection. The implications of this shared neural loop are that stress and infection sensitize the body's reaction to the other. In other words, an infection primes the circuit so that it has an exaggerated response to later stress and vice versa. While stress creates a sickness response, it also appears that stress enhances immunity, enhances immunity, at least the nonspecific first-line immunity. And that makes evolutionary sense because if you're under stress and you're about to be attacked by a wild animal, We human beings, we would want to prime our first-line immune response to be ready in case of injury. So yeah, there's that fight or flight, so the blood has to go out to the brain, the eyes, the ears, the limbs, so that you can fight or get away. But at the same time, the body knows that it might be injured. So that is why stress creates a sickness response. Stress is another form of infection, scientists are saying, and the consequences of stress are mediated, mediated by the activation of circuits that actually evolved to defend against infection. Okay, so let's bring it back to present day because we're not, I don't think we're running away from wild animals, any of us, but a lot of us have to deal with depression. Understanding this dual function circuitry may help psychologists better understand depression. In fact, depressed mood produces all the same behavioral changes as both the sickness and the stress responses, changes that conserve energy and keep people out of harm's way. In some sense, it could be thought of as a highly efficient circuit for triggering these adaptive changes. Evidence for connecting depression with the sickness stress circuitry comes from studies in animals and humans. For example, studies of patients receiving interleukin-1 to fight cancer found that they developed severe depression and vice versa. People with depression have elevated cytokine levels. Clinical studies have also associated cytokines with cognitive impairments, which point to changes in the immune system with day-to-day -day variability in cognitive function. An example of this is what we already talked about, bereavement. Stories of recently, be recently bereaved individuals dying soon after their partner are common. A study that followed 95,647 recently widowed individuals found that during the first week of bereavement, mortality was twice the expected rate. There is more to this than a medical, the medical, the metaphorical broken heart. Okay. Um, so that's with bereavement. Now let's talk about those of us who have digestive issues. The gut, again, the second brain of the body. It is fairly well established that there is a strong association between sustained stressful life events and the onset of symptoms in functional gastrointestinal disorders, such as ulcers, inflammatory bowel disease, or irritable bowel syndrome. If anyone says that people experiencing psychosomatic illness are just being dramatic, all they have to do is recall the last time they got sick to their stomachs, the last time they experienced some kind of hardship. I remember the first time I had a broken heart. I, I, you know, and that's a type of bereavement. It's, it's, 
you know, it's almost like a death. I remember holding my stomach because it hurts so bad. There's reasons for this. It's not being dramatic. It's that dual circuitry. Now for folks who have cancer, health professionals working with cancer patients know only too well that a patient's outlook and their quantity and quality of psychological support can hugely impact the outcome of their disease. The same can be said about people who are HIV positive or anyone with any other chronic disease. Now let's look at wound healing. The speed at which a surgical patient heals has been linked to psychological factors. For example, increased levels of fear or distress before surgery have been associated with worse outcomes, including longer stays in the hospital, more post-operative complications, and higher rates of rehospitalization. Preliminary work finds that researchers can disrupt learning and memory in rats by injecting bacteria into rats' digestive tracts or by injecting interleukin-1 into their hippocampus. Again, which in part governs emotion and memory. Okay, let's talk about the good news of psychoneuroimmunity um, that it brings to us. The notion that a positive outlook on life and a cheery disposition to help stave off illness, it's an ancient, it's an ancient idea, but it's much more than an old wives tale. While we've well established that in the minds of most people, stress can induce illness, it just stands to reason, and that's what Aristotle said, we have a unique capacity to reason. It just stands to reason that conversely, a fun-filled occasion with loved ones, for example, can soothe aches and pains and stave off the very same illness. Scientists state that the body is responding to what's going on in the brain and not so much to what's going on in the environment, which is an interesting statement. I'm not saying that people don't get sick because of environmental issues, but they say it mainly, um, you know, how, how that illness is treated or how the body treats it really stems in what's going on in your head. Speaking of that, let's talk about resilience because this was brought up by the ancients. Resilience is the process, process that allows us to adapt to adversity, whether it be trauma, disease, failure, whatever, and your ability to recover from it. Resilience protects us from the negative effects of stressors on our body and our immunity. There are certain individual qualities that favor resilience, such as a positive attitude, personal control, and optimism. So to summarize, positive thinking is a key asset to favor resilience and thus present, prevent or even reverse the effect of psychological or physical stress on our health. So if that's proven, how do we become more resilient, especially in a world that is just getting crazier? The impact of a positive mindset in sports performance provides a good example of the effect of self-talk on our body response. An optimistic mental imagery and encouraging self-talk have been proven to be reliable companions for psychological and physical well-being and thus personal progress and resilience. Self-talk, meaning talking to oneself out loud, out loud, to replace negative thoughts with positive messages, is an effective strategy to handle challenges and attain resilience, as resilience is not an innate quality. It is not an innate quality. It is something that can be learned and even improved, okay? So when you see somebody who's a resilient person and you just like, ah, oh, you know, 
they just have a way of fighting back and withstanding, they, that's because they practiced that. They were not born that way. Okay, so um, DBT skills, look it up. It's a psychological um, approach to exactly what we are talking about. DBT. So keeping a balanced and an efficient immune system is key to optimize the effects of positive thinking and optimistic self-talk. Okay, take care of the immune system and it will take care of you um, and vice versa. Keep thinking positively and that will boost your immune system. As we've learned, psychoneuroimmunology teaches that it's the vagus nerve that tells the brain when it's sick when we experience stress. At the same time, the vagus nerve is also the body's superpower that is used to counteract your fight-flight stimulus. It's how you develop a healthy stress response and how you become resilient. When the vagus nerve is stimulated, you feel calmer, more compassionate, and clearer. Stimulating the vagus benefits your autonomic nervous system and your mental health. Okay, so the vagus nerve, it is the longest nerve in your body. It connects your brain to many important organs throughout the body, including the gut, your second brain, that includes your intestines and your stomach, and it also connects to the heart and the lungs, so how you're breathing. In fact, the word vagus means wanderer in Latin, which accurately represents how the nerve wanders all over the body and reaches various organs. The vagus nerve is also a key part of the parasympathetic rest and digest nervous system or the parasympathetic nervous system. It influences your breathing, your digestive function, and your heart rate, all of which can have a huge impact on your mental health. So if you're in fight or flight, your blood is like rushing to your extremities, but when you're relaxed and you're going into feed and breed, the blood comes back into the middle of the body and it starts nourishing the digestive function, okay? And that's when you're allowed, you know, you're able to sleep and you're able to eat and relax, okay? So what we really need to do is pay special attention to the tone of the vagus nerve. Vagal tone is an internal biological process that represents the activity of the vagus nerve. Increasing vagal tone activates the parasympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system and having a higher vagal tone means that your body can relax faster and deeper after stress. In 2010, researchers discovered a positive feedback loop between high vagal tone, positive emotions, and good physical health. In other words, the more you increase your vagal tone, the more your physical and mental health will improve and vice versa. The vagal response reduces stress. It reduces our heart rate and our blood pressure. It changes the function of certain parts of the brain, stimulates digestion, all those things that happen when we are relaxed. So here it is. Here's how we strengthen vagal tone. Number one. And please consult with a doctor first, especially people who have cardiovascular issues. Cold exposure. Acute cold exposure has been shown to activate the vagus nerve and activate neurons through vagus nerve pathways. Researchers have also found that exposing yourself to cold on a regular basis can lower your sympathetic fight or flight response and increase parasympathetic activity through the vagus nerve. Now, some people go and take those polar plunges out in the lake. Some people go to those cryotherapy machines. Others take cold showers and then go outside in cold temperatures with minimal clothing. Again, don't do this without talking to your doctor. If you're generally healthy, though, you might... Um, 
want to finish your next shower with at least 30 seconds of really cold water and see how you feel. And then you can work your way up to longer periods of time under cold water. Um, or you could just stick your face in, in a, a bowl of ice cold water. The second, and we've talked about this a lot, deep and slow breathing. Deep and slow breathing is another way to stimulate the vagus nerve. It's been shown to reduce anxiety and increase the parasympathetic system by activating the vagus nerve. Most people take about 10 to 14 breaths every minute. Slowing that down and taking about six deep breaths over the course of a minute is a great way to relieve stress. You should breathe in deeply from your diaphragm or the, the muscle that is in the middle of your torso. When you do this, your stomach should expand outward on your inhale and your exhale should be long and slow. This is key to stimulating the vagus nerve and reaching a state of relaxation. Number three, singing, humming, chanting, and gargling. The vagus nerve is connected to your vocal cords and the muscles at the back of your throat. Singing, humming, chanting, gargling, these can activate these muscles and stimulate the vagus nerve, which is shown to increase heart rate variability and vagal tone. Gargling water before swallowing it. There's a book somewhere. I, they talk about this, gargling water before swallowing it. Uh, taking probiotics is another way to heighten vagal tone. Um, it's becoming clear to researchers that gut bacteria improves brain function by affecting the vagus nerve. Just like when you're sick and there's an infection, uh, that, that sickness... Uh, travels up the vagus nerve and tells the brain to send out the sickness response. Same thing. If you're taking good bacteria into your body, that also sends a signal up vagus nerve, which tells the brain, hey, this is healthy. In one study, animals were given the probiotic lactobacillus rhamnosus, and researchers found positive changes in the GABA receptors in their brain, a reduction in stress hormones, and less depression and anxiety-like behavior. The researchers also concluded that these beneficial changes between the gut and the brain were facilitated by the vagus nerve. When the vagus nerve was removed in other mice, the addition of lactobacillus rhamnosus, which is a probiotic, to their digestive system fail to reduce anxiety, stress, or improve mood when the vagus nerve was removed. That's why you need the vagus nerve. Another study found that the probiotic uh, Bifidobacterium longum, that sounds like a Harry Potter chant or curse. Anyway, that probiotic normalized anxiety-like behavior in mice by acting through the vagus nerve. Fifth, meditation. It's a favored relaxation technique and it increases vagal tone. Research has shown that med meditation increases vagal tone and positive emotions and promotes feelings of goodwill towards others. Another study found that meditation reduces fight or flight activity. Number six, omega-3 fatty acids. They are essential fats that your body cannot produce itself. They are found primarily in fish and are necessary for the normal electrical functioning of your brain and nervous system. There's other forms that you can find that are not in fish, but that's the primary source. Omega-3s, as discussed already, are critical for brain and mental health and affect so many aspects of wellness. They've been shown to help people overcome addiction and even reverse cognitive decline. Researchers have also discovered omega-3 fatty acids increase vagal tone and activity. 
Studies have shown that they reduce heart rate and increase heart rate variability, which means that they likely stimulate the vagus nerve. High fish consumption is also associated with enhanced vagal activity and parasympathetic predominance. All good things. Exercise. Exercise increases the brain's growth hormone, supports your brain's mitochondria, and helps reverse cognitive decline. It's also been shown to exercise, stimulate the vagus nerve through breathing and movement. Okay, many brain health experts recommend exercise as the number one piece of advice for optimal brain health. Walking, weightlifting, sprinting, these are some of the best forms of exercise, but you should choose a sport or an exercise routine that you enjoy that is good for you so that you will stick with it consistently. Getting a massage increases vagal activity and vagal tone. Um, the vagus nerve is stimulated by massaging specific parts of the body, um, especially foot massages have been shown to increase vagal modulation and to decrease fight or flight. Socialization and laughing can reduce cortisol, the body's main stress hormone. Cortisol raises blood sugar by releasing stored glucose, which insulin, while insulin lowers blood sugar. Having chronically high cortisol levels can lead to persistent high blood sugar, which can lead to type two diabetes. See how it's related. Laughter has been shown to increase heart rate variability and improve mood. Vagus nerve stimulation also leads to laughter as a side effect, suggesting that they are connected and influence um, one another. And um, I can't tell you how many times I would start cracking up in yoga, like toward the end of the class, I just start laughing and not even know why. And here it is. Here it is, the science right in front of me. So, if you can, go out, hang out with your friends, laugh with them as much as you possibly can. If it's hard to get out, you know, get, you know, do some FaceTime or get online and laugh with your friends there. Um, I am such a introvert. I need to do this more often myself. So um, to conclude a little bit here, you don't have to be controlled by your body or your mind. You can control your body. You can control your mind. You, the essence of you, has the power to tell them what to do. And by stimulating the vagus nerve, you can send a message to your body that it's time to relax and de-stress. And that can lead to long-term improvements in health well-being and resilience so quick little story and then we're done a long time ago i had to get some minor surgery um, even though it was mi minor surgery it was painful so they wanted me to stay overnight in the hospital and in order to get this surgery they had to give me a spinal block they said oh it's going to feel like you had a cocktail or two well the effect it had on me is I just passed out. And when I woke up again, there were white coats surrounding me. They were all around me. And I was really kind of like, as if I had like 10 drinks is what it felt like. And people are looking down at me and I hear somebody call out for epinephrine. And I knew what that was. I knew that epinephrine was for people who had... Um, an allergic reaction to something and they were going into shock. I knew what that was. And I just happened to look up at the monitors that I was hooked up to and I saw my heart rate was soaring and my blood pressure was dropping. But I was so out of it that I didn't even panic, like it didn't bother me. I just saw what was happening, detached like. And I asked one of the uh, nurses or the doctors if I was going into shock and someone said that I might be. So I went into what's called 
yogic veloma to breathing. So basically, it's deep breathing, but you draw out your exhale, like to double the time of your inhale. So I inhaled for like four seconds. I suspended the breath for two seconds. And then I exhaled for like six or eight seconds. And I did this steadily and I was watching the monitor and I saw my blood pressure come back up and my heart rate come back down. And a nurse standing watching this said to me, you're a strong woman. And then I passed out again, but I was okay. So get your good laugh and get a long sleep because not only is this an Irish proverb, but it is medical science. A good laugh and a long sleep are the best cures in the doctor's book. Until next week, arrivederci.